Hi, and welcome to a Wound Care Voices podcast facilitated by Mernlicker Healthcare. My name is Sarah Gardner, and I'm a clinical lead from Tissue Viability in Oxford. And my name is Penny Rubio, and I'm a Tissue Viability nurse um, in Oxford, working with Sarah. We've called this podcast the one about venous leg ulcer assessment. Hope you enjoy it. Go fill your boots. The views, information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely ours and do not represent those of our employers or Merlinger Healthcare. So Penny, we've worked with each other for quite some years now. Nearly 20 years, I think, Sarah. Is it 20 years? My mm-hmm. goodness. You keep following me around. We were in district nursing for many years. Yes. And then uh, you followed me into tissue viability. I did, six years ago. Oh, what a great, great relationship we have. <laughs> and Mad. what's fantastic is that we're both passionate about uh, leg ulcers or lower limb conditions. Yeah, which, absolutely. Which uh, is big business at the moment. And it seems to be that a lot of our caseload uh, are people with, with that condition. Yes, indeed. I mean, you 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 focus very heavily, don't you, Sarah, on sort of venous leg ulcer stuff. You do a lot of work around the Legs Matter campaign. There's all sorts of stuff going on, isn't there, nationally? Um, the National Wound Strategy with the lower limb um, uh, theme going on. Um, and also the sequin that's going to be coming out for leg ulcers. Lots of stuff going on around that. Um, what, what do you think the current issues are, Sarah? What are the hot topics in, in leg ulceration at the moment then? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And I'm delighted that there is this uh, platform now for lower limb conditions to you know, be discussed. Um, I think all of us have known for some time, I think, Penny, back even in our district nursing years, that people with leg ulcers um, don't get a good service often and care can be quite suboptimal. Uh, there's been a big agenda, hasn't there, in pressure ulcers for many years. So I'm delighted that this is happening now. I think when you look at the guest study from 2015, um, it came to light, well, I think it just confirmed, didn't it, what we already probably mm, knew, yeah. is that people have delayed healing in leg ulcer management. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of suffering. People aren't assessed properly and care is suboptimal. Uh, there's a nervousness, I think, around compression. But I think... Often it's that they don't have the correct etiology, I think. And therefore, if you don't get that, um, mm. how, how can you put people on the right pathway? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand. We, I suppose really we need to get to the bottom of why people don't get assessed properly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complex thing, isn't it? And I'm looking back at my days as a district nurse and then coming sort of into tissue viability. Um, I can see some of the reasons why it's it's challenging for people at, at the coalface. Um, getting that holistic assessment can be very challenging. You need to have the knowledge, um, the skills to be able to to be able to assess somebody holistically. But also you need the little bit of the headspace, don't you? I think, you know, work these days, um, you know, you have your face to the the millstone really and um and being able to have the wherewithal to lift your head and and think about that holistic assessment rather than just to respond to the leg in front of you um i think that requires you know um awareness skill experience um to do that um yeah it's a tricky mm. thing that holistic assessment I it think. is i agree i don't think it's just about time i think it is the skill isn't yeah. it um i get frustrated because we put a lot of training on in in in, yeah. in our area, um, 
And maybe the the problem is it's that sort of theory practice gap, that inability to yes. consolidate their learning yes. and, and having the confidence to, to perform an assessment properly yes. uh, to then get people on the right pathway. Yes. So, so you know, do you think people understand what holistic assessment is and what the components of that are? What, what, what do you understand by holistic assessment? What do people need to be doing? Well, I like to think of, of when I'm sort of assessing somebody with a lower limb problem, um, I use something in my head a little bit like the skin bundle thing, the S skin bundle. Um, I think of the whole person and I sort of split that into intrinsic risk factors and extrinsic risk factors. And then I think about the whole leg, my lower limb assessment and examining the whole leg. And then I think about my assessment of the wound and I use times um, in my head. So I think having that sort of framework that's easily accessible in my head enables me to remind myself that I need to th- cover these areas sort of um, in my assessment. So I find that framework helpful. And I think that something like that will help clinicians who are struggling with time and space to think holistically um, to, to be able to do that. So in terms of the, the patient assessment, I mean, that is really important. And we know from the referrals that we get, patients have often got some quite serious underlying Absolutely. comorbidities, haven't they? Yeah. Um, do, you th- do you think there is an understanding out there from clinicians about the impact of those comorbidities on on what their diagnosis might be, but yeah. how that will influence healing mm, I think I think that again they're, they're often overlooked and one of the things that I found when I came to tissue viability was we have so many referrals that come in and you don't have the patient in front of you that you're reliant on the information that um, is there in front of you somebody's sort of medical history and I, I realized then that actually um, that helped me by just looking at that medical history first that helped me to think about the things that I if I thought about it I did know previously that diabetes for example will delay wound healing if you've got you know high levels of sugar in your blood of course it's going to make it difficult for the the body to heal so although I think I was aware of those things I possibly wasn't putting it all together Um, and I think a framework that encourages people to you know look at those intrinsic risk factors um classic things like diabetes, inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, um, things like lupus, um, even whether somebody's anemic or they've got um, poor renal function. All of these things will impact on somebody's ability to heal. And typically, of course, for the lower limb, we're looking for signs of any, um, any circulatory problems, any arterial disease elsewhere in the body. So if somebody's had an MI, TIA, CVA, it's telling you that there's arterial disease elsewhere in the body so it might inform you to think well hang on a minute if there's arterial disease elsewhere what are the chances of having it in in these legs so um yes and I think nurses often don't look as in depth perhaps at somebody's comorbidities even thinking about well maybe if I don't see it in the medical history maybe I need to check out certain things like if they haven't had any bloods in the last sort of six months or so um, maybe it's worth seeing if somebody's anemic maybe we should be checking asking a GP to screen for um, anemia renal function um, maybe an HbA1c somebody might have snuck into being a type 2 diabetic without people realizing mm. um, um, you know, a CRP might might show that somebody's struggling with some infection on board. And even in my world, I have to get into the edema of the leg here. Um, 
you know, um, if somebody's got a, a very low albumin level, that's going to contribute to edema in the leg. So, you know, I think that we need to be mindful of that there are all of these things that can impact on the leg and that we need to go looking for those almost before we start looking at the, the rest of the assessment. It's like being a detective, isn't it, really? I we, love that yes, about we leg have to delve assessment. deep, absolutely. Indeed. And I think, I think you know, we, we're always being based in the community and the... Yes. the challenges of of assessing people or caring for people in a community setting um you know i know that the the guest study picked up the uh, connection or the the link with malnutrition and that is a challenge as well which is sometimes overlooked and but the difficulties of yes. of improving nutrition yes. in in the community when you're in a patient's home yes. people are often frail they've got poor appetites um and pain um is is a is a is a big problem isn't it and Absolutely. the ability to to assess correctly for pain, the, you know, looking at the different types of pain. Um, pain, I think, is an area that's not managed well. Would you agree? that I would. And I think sort of, um, you know, I often find that, that people feel like they've addressed pain because somebody's on some analgesia. And, and it's almost like, mm. oh, well, that's all I can do about it. Yeah. Um, when really there are, there are many reasons why somebody would have pain with a lower limb. Mm. Um, and you need to assess that properly to try and identify what the causative factors of the pain are. Um, there may be things that you can do to relieve the causative factors. And it's not just about giving people analgesia. So, yes, I think, you know, important to be able to properly assess pain and to be able to assess sort of descriptors of pain as well. You know, often... Um, even with people with sort of chronic edema, there's a neuropathic element to their pain. And being able to identify neuropathic pain through the descriptors of sort of burning, um, pins and needles, tingling, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, um, diabetics often suffer with neuropathic pain, don't we? We know that. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and that requires a completely different sort of analgesia. And, and if you don't have that knowledge and the skills to be able to assess in that way, you're not going to be able to... to to properly manage the pain or help the patient manage the pain. And, and that can be one of the biggest things, you know, for, well, for patients. It, it impacts massively on Absolutely. concordance, doesn't it? Absolutely. It seems to be yes. one of the main things that's yes. that's sort of cited yeah. as, as being a reason for yeah. non-concordance. But Sarah, I'd like to take you back to that, what you were saying about nutrition, because mm -hmm. I've got a real bee in my bonnet about this at the moment, because I think we can do a lot better with nutrition. And I think there are some quick wins and quick tools that we can arm nurses with in the community. Um, you know, there is there are some very easy tools out there to use for assessing nutrition, the must um, nutritional risk assessment tool, um, looking at somebody's weight, their BMI, the history of weight loss over the last six months can tell you how at risk somebody is. Um, a food chart is a quick and easy thing to do. And these days, with all of the technology that's out there, there are plenty of apps out there that help you work out how much protein, for example, somebody is taking in, in their diet. So an easy food chart, you don't really need a dietitian so much anymore for an initial assessment of how much protein somebody is having. And we know how important protein is when it comes to sort of wound healing, particularly people with venous leg ulcers, they lose a lot of exudate, they lose a lot of protein, um, and, and we need to replace that some way. So I think these tools, um, you know, a lot of our community nurses have got um, iPads now. Mm, absolutely. They can have these Download apps on them. their iPads yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and um, nutritional food fortification. Mm. Again, there's some quick and easy gains there using milk powder to fortify milk. We know that's a cheap and easy way of doing of, of adding lots of extra protein to somebody's diet. And we can quickly and easily give people advice on how to do that. So I think that there's a lot that community nurses can do. Yes, I think do. so. And it's it's about sort of a patient and carer education Absolutely. as well, isn't it? Yes. Because they can't do it all themselves. Indeed. So when we're talking about um, assessment, Penny, we've sort of talked about the patient, but obviously we know that in leg ulcer or lower limb conditions, a lower limb assessment is really important. Yes. And... Uh, you know, when we think about the skills required for that, I mean, we have tools, don't we, in, in our area of practice that um, or documentation that that takes the, the, the clinician through a process of skin inspection, looking for yep. changes mm. that might pick up whether this condition is more associated with the vein, so to be a venous leg ulcer mm. or whether they've got some arterial disease. So, you know, for example, we were looking for skin changes such as hemosiderin staining or um, varicose eczema or atrophy blanche or mm. ankle flare. Um, I think I think generally clinicians, clinicians are fairly good at that now. I think the area they get nervous about mm. is when they have to do an ABPI, a Doppler. There seems to be a lack or a, a big sort of lack of confidence around that. And unfortunately, we know that if a Doppler doesn't get done it seems to be that compression won't be applied and of course that will then contribute to yes. delayed wound healing you will have come across that i think in a quite a big way in terms of chronic edema when getting a, a doppler reading is difficult do you think how can we overcome that do you think Yes, I think, I mean, there's a lot of history behind all of this, isn't there? You know, about how, um, you know, compression came into being used in, in nursing for treating venous leg ulcers and the need to do a Doppler assessment. Um, and I think nurses sort of um, historically have developed a, an anxiety over putting compression on mm. a limb because of the risk of arterial disease. And of course, that's resulted in people either um, putting reduced compression on because they're fearful of putting the full compression on um, um or being anxious about making the decision themselves. Um, and we know, don't we, that that causes an awful lot more harm through poor management of a venous leg ulcer um, that, than the risk of, of applying compression um, on a leg that's got some arterial disease in it. So we, we know that part of our lower limb assessment, it's, it's we should be attempting to to, to Doppler our patients. Mm. Um, uh, from what I gather from the, the evidence from the guest study, we know that only about 13% of patients with a leg ulcer had had uh, a recorded ABPI. Yes. Although, worryingly, 81% of patients were in compression. What type of compression, I'm not sure. That, that alarms me slightly. Um, mm. But I would like to sort of maybe explore why maybe people don't have an ABPI recorded or why Doppler isn't attempted. I think there's a lot of nervousness around Dopplering. And we know that there are some cases when Doppler is impossible, whether that's due to pain or the patient's anxiety. Yes. But we know that some limbs are, are very large. But you, you yourself would know that more than anybody in terms of your, yes. your leadership in, in, in chronic edema. So what, what are your thoughts on ABPI in, in, in patients with maybe a lot of oedema on board? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I always say to people, if, if an ABI is, ABPI is possible, you should go ahead and attempt it. Um, but of course, with chronic edema, there are many people that you can't. Either the skin is too firm and fibrotic and hard, um, or it's too painful, or the limb is just so large, you can't get a cuff around it, um, or there's so much edema, you can't really hear what's going on. Um, and, and there are many places where, you know, they recognise um, that, that a, an ABPI isn't possible. And the, the British Lymphology Society has brought out a, a really helpful statement supporting that practice that it may not be possible and just because you can't do an ABPI doesn't mean to say you can't do an assessment um, of the limb to see what the risks of arterial disease are and still go ahead and apply compression quite confidently and quite safely. So it's about looking at, um, again, it's going back to that holistic assessment and your lower limb assessment, isn't it? So it's looking for any sort of red flags in their medical history, um, any big warning signs that would make you think, oh gosh, this really could be a risk of arterial disease. So, you know, MI, CVAs, things like that, arterial disease elsewhere in the body might make me want to be, you know, a little bit more wary. But in the absence of those and in the presence of sort of, you know, um, no ischemia on, on the toes, um, no no noticeable problems in terms of sort of claudication, for example, um, um, you know, and, and an otherwise limb that's not showing any signs of arterial disease, certainly with chronic edema, you can absolutely go ahead and, and put full compression onto it. I think, again, it's just that confidence thing. So we need to it get is. clinicians to that sort of point of being more confident to make those decisions don't we and in my experience I mean we've been doing a pilot recently um about about um dopplering and we found that patients are waiting a very long time for their doppler it's taking nurses a long time most nurses were saying it takes them over 45 minutes to do a doppler and even when they've got the results they're not sure Mm -hmm. how to put that together because they're aware there might be a false positive in say um diabetics so it does it makes people nervous and 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 that decision making about what level of compression safe to put on is often and delayed as well and and like you said Sarah this delay can lead mm. to you know far more chronic and complex wounds with all sorts of issues of massive impact isn't it um, and a far more complex problem to to deal with so it's a big issue and something that we need to be helping clinicians yeah yeah I agree I I agree so you mentioned right at the beginning Penny around assessment so it's around our the patient assessment yes lower limb and then you mentioned the wound assessment as well I'm I'm a bit of a great believer in in a leg ulcer is a wound a wound is a wound and we should assess them in the same way which is probably true but um, I, th- I think it's important because we know that a lot of these chronic wounds, the behavior of that wound mm. is quite complex. Uh, and what do you think the main sort of components of wound assessment should be? I know we have various tools that we use to yeah. uh, allow nurses to, to assess properly. But getting that really good baseline assessment yes. is so important, isn't it? To get the, the wound bed to its optimum health to Absolutely. allow sort of full healing. So what, what do you, what, you know, what do you suggest clinicians when you're working with them around how you will assess that wound. Okay, well, there's the classic model, isn't there? The times thing. So you're looking at the, you're assessing the tissue type, you're assessing the wound for signs of infection, you're looking at the moisture levels and managing exudate um, so that they're optimum. Um, uh, you're looking at the edges of the wound. If the edges aren't healthy, you're not going to get epithelialization in. Um, and, and you're looking at the skin. And for me, that there are two big things that sort of stand out of there that I think are areas that we need to sort of focus on. Um, 
the, the infection side of things. I mean, we are learning all the time, aren't we, about biofilm? Um, and there's guidance that's just come out, isn't there? Um, international um, uh, guidance um, on wound bed preparation for um, ulcers and, and, and debriding um, and, and dealing with, with biofilm. Um, and I think nurses aren't my experience, community nurses, well, I know from my own experience, it, it took a while. I had a light bulb moment of understanding that and that you may have a wound that you wouldn't necessarily think is infected in a true way because there's no erythema. It's not hot. It's, you know, I'm not looking at something going, oh, ouch, that looks obviously infected. Um, but the business of there being bacteria present in the wound that are delaying healing. Um, I think nurses aren't good at identifying that. I think, um, I think don't you think there's been, a, I don't know, as if that's, that's just accepted now. It's a chronic wound, and therefore that's what that chronic wound should look like. Yes, I think you're um, right. I, 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 yeah, I think the identification of infection shouldn't be complex, but it seems to no. have become complex, doesn't mm. it? Because there are, I suppose, a multitude of of signs or symptoms that mm. you you might be looking for that isn't always obvious. Yes. Um, but we know that the presence of infection and biofilm, as you say, whether you need to debride or not, will be a cause of delayed yes. wound healing. And despite the compression that maybe you're going to apply to that leg, if you haven't got the environment right, exactly. um, you're, you're going to run into problems. So so I think that that bit of the assessment is still really, really important, isn't it, in addition to the patient it's bit key. and the lower it's, and, limb. And I think as time yeah. goes by and we understand more, we're realising just, you know, that it's not all about the circumstances. Circulation. No, yes, of absolutely. course, we have to get that right. But it is equally about the wound bed um, and, and the, the managing the sort of bacterial sort of status in the wound. And, and you know, for me, um, I had my light bulb moment. And the tool that's really helped me with that has been the AMBLE tool that looks at those clinical signs and symptoms of what's the wound like? What's the exudate like? What are pain levels like? The wound healing sort of progression. And it helps you sort of compare your wound to the green, amber and red categories um, um, and then prompts you towards the right sort of treatment of that, whether you need to use antimicrobial dressings or not. Um, you know, has it got to the point that you do need antibiotics? If Has that erythema sort of stretched more than two centimetres away from the margins of the wound? And I think a tool like that... Um, the, amble, the amble tool being what something that we've developed in yes, Oxford, isn't yes, it? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's like a traffic lighting system mm -hmm. that we use, isn't yeah, it? That sort yeah. of that helps staff to be able to identify um, whether there is an issue with the wound and then a sort of a slight management plan mm -hmm. of when to when to use antimicrobials, when to swab, when not to swab. More than more, more than when to swab, really, isn't it? Absolutely, um, yeah. and, and when yeah. not to antibiotic. Um, so I, I think that, you know, a tool like that is is really helpful for clinicians to, to work That's out how to deal with that. we'd recommend people use. Absolutely, yeah. So... Um, Obviously, as we, we go on a lot about this, Penny, in, in our service, is don't forget the skin. Um, I think people focus on the wound and then you look in horror at yes. the surrounding skin is, that is such a wonderful medium for, for bacteria. I often with think of it like a tsunami <laughs> on, on the outskirts of the wound. It's like a little tidal wave of bacteria heading Absolutely. to invade the wound. Yes, yeah, yeah. So we mustn't forget the skin. No. Uh, looking at the skin as, uh, as, as an organ and... And obviously, which can fail uh, and which will be influenced by exudate or infection. So we're a great believer in, in not forgetting that. But also all that, that hyperkeratosis. Oh, do you love picking it off? Now, Sarah, you know we don't pick. <laughs> 
we gently assist. Absolutely, yes, yes. with lots of emollient. With yeah. lots of emollient. Yeah. But you know, it's. I think of hyperkeratosis as being like the slough of the skin. It's you know, slough is filled. Mm-hmm. It's dead, isn't it? It's just filled with bacteria. Yeah. And I think the hyperkeratosis is just the same. And and people need to realise that by leaving it there, they're they're contributing to a, a constant dumping of bacteria into the wound bed. So it almost doesn't matter so much. You know, you, you can be using your antimicrobials and dividing the wound bed all you like, but if you're not dealing with the skin around it, you're just dumping more bacteria into it, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. fully agree. So we'll we have collected a huge amount of information. Uh, during our assessment process. Yes. And we now have to interpret what we found. Yes. Um, and and you know, people need the skills to be able to interpret yep. that and to come up with a, a, an etiology or a diagnosis, yeah. which then hopefully will lead them beautifully on to uh, putting the patient onto the right pathway yes. so that we can start improving our healing rates. Um, but that's for another discussion, I reckon, Penny, don't you? We could go on and on, couldn't we, Sarah? We never stop. Good to talk to you, Penny. Yeah, you too, Sarah.